good morning. My name is Fritz, and if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you uh, before you leave today uh, and be available for that. Uh, we are, as Jeffrey prayed, in the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 10 this morning. And as you're turning there, um, I want to ask you a question. What, what, if, what if there was something so, so unique, so important, so crucial... Um, that you could sort of dress yourself in, that you were, it made you so comfortable in your own skin and gave you such courage and confidence that you wanted to tell other people about that. Uh, when I was young, I was always looking for something unique to make me different and, and really to make me stand out so that people would like me. And one of the first ways that I found was through parachute pants. And if you don't know what parachute pants are, praise God, and please don't let them come back. They're probably back because they were in the 80s. But I remember going to uh, Metro Center Mall in Jackson, Mississippi, and there was Jeans West, and the first pair of parachute pants that I ever saw were in the, in the window. And they were like sleek, and I don't even know what they were made out of, parachute stuff, I guess, and they had zippers on them. And they were kind of tight and shiny. And I even taught my brother, who was kind of a right-down-the-middle guy, didn't ever push the boundaries, didn't want to be unique at all. And, uh, and I talked him into getting some. And we went back to our small town in our small school, and boy, it just took over. Because we had on our parachute pants. And we pointed to them, and we were like, look at these. And everybody wanted them. It was like evangelism of parachute pants just broke out throughout our school and our town. What if there was something called the righteousness of Christ that you could clothe yourself in and it freed you from having to like, use your righteousness to actually be righteous. It freed you to rest in his righteousness, to be comfortable in His skin, in union with Him, and all of those benefits that you could navigate in this world, and it really didn't matter what other people thought of you. It was so secure. Wouldn't that be something much better than your uniqueness or your parachute pants to share with others? That really is, in a sense, what Paul has been saying that that garment, that righteousness, it is so secure, it is wound up even in God's electing love for you that cannot be touched. And if that is true, it is something you really want to take out in public and share with other people. And if that makes you uncomfortable, it may be that you are wearing or trying to put your own righteousness back on. And you need to be renewed in the righteousness of Christ. That's really what we're going to see this morning. This beautiful gospel message of righteousness. And even, even bound up as we have seen in this, in this beautiful doctrine of God's electing love, election, but also as we have been saying over and over, evangelism. Election and evangelism. Because election really is bound up with the gospel. 
And the gospel is really bound up with the righteousness of Christ. And that is what our faith is in. And that should always produce evangelism. Let me read our passage for us this morning. Romans chapter 10 verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah, praise God. But then notice this question. Series of questions. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for these beautiful promises in the book of Romans. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ. Thank you for your electing love. Thank you that each week we have the privilege together with all the saints by your spirit to be strengthened and the knowledge of your incomprehensible love for us. The word of Christ for us. Lord, would you bring us near once again that we might be sent forth to proclaim and live in such a way that brings so much attention to your uniqueness in this world. There is truly no one like you. Would you declare that to us today in Christ's name? Amen. So I've told uh, you, if you've been around our church, about my mother. It really grieves me that both of my parents are deceased and that you really didn't get to know my parents. Uh, they were beautiful people, but my mother, uh, we had a lot of nicknames for her. But one of them, I may have told you before, we called her the grocery store prophet. She would tell anyone about Jesus. I can remember many times with the butcher, back in the old days you had a butcher, still have those sort of, and she would just be talking and talking about how good Jesus was. And I would be like, Mom. And you know what? The butcher would always listen because my mother had such a, such a heart and such a love and a tone in which she did it that, that people just 
wanted to listen to her. But here's the deal. And, and please, don't hear me in the wrong way about what I'm going to say because these are I'm not throwing these things under the bus. I want you to understand that. But I'm trying to get at what Paul's getting at today. My mother could not have spelled the word infralapsarianism. If you even know what that is, it's okay if you don't. She didn't know what superlapsarianism was. She didn't know if she was amill, premill, or postmill. Go to Matthew's class. He's going to touch on those. He's not going to major in it, but he's going to touch on them so you can understand it. But he's going he's to major on what's important about those things. But my mother didn't know what those things were. She was probably the one that we don't even like. She just didn't know. She didn't know the words paedo-baptist or credo-baptist. She didn't know which NIV to read. She read Reader's Digest in the Bible. And this is what I'm getting at. What my mother knew and understood was that she was loved by Jesus. She was a sinner and Jesus had lived and died and been raised from the dead. And she knew that if she could come, anyone could come. And that's how she lived her life. That's why she told anyone who would listen. And that's why we called her the grocery store prophet. Today, what I want us to see, Paul has been in some thick grounds, right? He's been in some thick, deep waters. He has touched on things that are, that are, are, are tougher, right? And, and what he's doing today is he's really taking everything that he said and he's distilling that message down into the simplest of terms. And he's saying, I don't want you to get confused. Yes, go to Matt Griffith's class or his, his teaching on the Westminster Confession of Faith, dive into some of those beautiful doctrines. But this is what you have to understand, what we call a credible profession of faith to be a believer. This is all you really have to understand. This is the message. And as that message really grips your heart, you want to be sent to others. What Paul is doing is he's distilling the message of the gospel into the simplest of terms and imploring us to be sent out with it. So three points this morning. Basic message, broad message, and beautiful message. First of all, basic message, verses 5 through 13. If you remember last week, and, and you can go back and look at the first few verses there, and you can, you can look at the first few verses of what we read Basically, Paul's asking, or God is asking for one thing. And as I said last week, it's not primarily our obedience. It's trust. This is what he was really leaning into in 9.30 through 33. He's saying that the Jewish people misunderstood their obedience. They thought God loved them because of their obedience. And he's saying what you're missing is the first step, and that's trust in Christ alone. Just trust. Trust in Jesus' obedience. Faith alone, as we say, in Christ alone. And he's saying today that is the basic message that you must believe. Look at verses 5 through 7. He talks about Moses, 
And he's reaching way back into the Old Testament. Moses writes about the righteousness that was based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. And what he's saying here is there is a way to understand the Old Testament that it's Moses without Jesus. You can read the Old Testament to think and assume that, okay, there's a lot of commandments in there. There's a lot of to do. And therefore, I must do these things and I shall live. He's saying that's not the Old Testament message. That's Moses without Jesus. And then in contrast to that, look at verses 6 through 8. It's sort of like some, some phrases he throws out. You're like, what does that mean? Thankfully, there are commentators that help us to understand what he's saying. What he's saying is this. He said, the righteousness, in contrast to this idea that your righteousness comes by your obedience, is that your righteousness comes by faith. Do not say, this is how you get righteousness. I've got to really work hard, and I've got to climb that ladder of obedience. I've got to ascend into the heavens and bring Christ down. Do you see what he's saying there? Following it? Nor does he say that we're supposed to descend into the abyss. We've got to go way down there and bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, he's saying it is not your exertion by being holy, by being obedient that saves you, nor is it beating yourself up. I'm this bad. Woe is me. What Ella said earlier, when, when Isaiah saw the, the glory of God, what's the next thing that God says? He touches him with that coal and he says, go. And John sees him he says, yes, this is all true, but for you in Christ, do not be afraid. You are not saved by how bad you think you are or how good you're trying to be. That is not what saves you. Now I know you're like, Fritz, you've been going on and on about this stuff. So is Paul. It's in chapter 10. The word justification is there. It's all about Christ's obedience. And look at what he does. He contrasts that in verse 8. But what does he say? He reaches back into Deuteronomy and he says, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What he's saying here is it's not that you've got to get way up there or go way down there, but Christ is actually right in front of you. Faith in Christ. It's about proximity. What he's saying, again, I had to, I had to really lean on commentators here because it was confusing to me, but he's saying Christ is accessible by faith. What you are seeking to attain by doing these things or going down there, you don't have to do all that because they're attainable by faith in Christ. If you believe in Christ, His righteousness belongs to you. And then Paul distills it down again. Look at verses 9 through 11. He's saying, look, all you have to do is believe that. Believe that in your heart. And you are saved. Confess that with your mouth. That's a credible profession of faith. That Jesus is Lord. And I think in this particular context, what he's saying is this. Will you let Jesus be Lord of your righteousness? Or are you going to take it back over? If you're Lord of your righteousness, you're going to mess up righteousness. 
If you stand before God going back, as he says in verse 3, seeking to reestablish your righteousness, you're going to blow the thing up. He's saying receive it by faith. It is a gift. He is Lord of our righteousness. Think for a minute about the rich young ruler. If there were anyone righteous, it was this guy. He comes to Jesus. He's a male. He's a leader. He's moral. And he's wealthy. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the right answer. And then Jesus says, okay... What are you looking for? He says, I, I, something's not right in my life. How do I get in the kingdom of heaven? How am I right with God? How am I justified? How am I saved? I, I, something about this isn't working. Jesus says, you've done all these great things. Awesome, man. Terrific. Now there's one thing you got to do. And what does Jesus do? He puts his finger on something that guy's clinging to for righteousness. This isn't about money. It's not about money. It's about his righteousness. And he wouldn't let go of it. And he walked away sad. I was thinking this week about ways that I have done this since I've become a Christian. What I think Paul's referring to about reestablishing our own righteousness. I became a Christian through the gospel. I understood the righteousness of Christ. I'd never understood that. And I, and I realized I was free in Christ and I could obey Him out of love and I could serve Him because of His grace and all of that beautiful stuff. And then what happens? You start getting into Christian circles and you hear about all this and you hear about all this. And for me, I, I began to try to prove my righteousness again instead of trusting God's righteousness. Here's just a few of my examples and hopefully they help you. I, I understood Reformed theology and all of a sudden I had the, the right theology and all my friends that didn't believe it had the wrong theology, and therefore I was more righteous than them. See how that goes? And then I learned about what the Bible said about marriage, and I wanted to be a good husband, and I, I began to divorce my marriage from Christ. And all of a sudden, I wanted a better marriage than everybody else. And then I realized what the Bible said to, to, to parents, and I wanted to have... You know, beautiful Christian children that all love Jesus. And I taught them the catechism and I taught them Hebrew and I taught them all sorts of things. But really somewhere in there I was trying to reestablish my own righteousness. And then one by one God had started messing those things up. Told you before, I had middle school girls basketball righteousness. I paid a guy $25 a lesson to make my girl a really good shooter. But she just didn't have it in her. She had a great shot. She just wouldn't shoot. So she sat on the bench, and I went to many, many, many tournaments and watched other girls play basketball. And guess what God was doing? <coughs> right? Then it was peewee football. He was a good football player until he wasn't. God has created all of us for good works in Christ. God does care about our obedience. Hear that. But not if you're trying to substitute it for Christ's obedience. You really are, as we've said before, free to struggle. 
You can't just leave that. It's not just in chapter 6 and 7. It's all through the gospel message. This book is about the gospel. And the gospel in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, is about the righteousness of God. And you are to believe that and to continue to believe that. It's, a, it's the basic message. Secondly, it's a broad message. Look at verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, sorry, 11, for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord over all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now there is a teaching out there that claims to be broad and I'm going to challenge that today and say that it is actually narrow and that teaching says something like this. It doesn't really matter what you believe. All belief systems are equal. They're all basically okay. And we want everybody to be okay, right? We want everybody to be saved. And so we're like, well, well, we don't want to hurt that person's feelings or make those people feel bad. And certainly don't want to be rude about it. But, but at the end of the day, we end up saying that it doesn't matter what you believe. That we're all just going to be okay. It feels broad but it's actually narrow because what it always goes down to, if you will ask your non-Christian friends that believe this or even your Christian friends that seep into this or it seeps into them, ask them good questions. And what you're going to hear is that at the end of the day, it ends up being about our morality and our goodness. All my friends that are outside of the church and have some sort of whatever belief system, you start asking them questions like, well, I just want to be a good person. Well, why? Well, I just need to be a good person. And Jesus says that that broadness actually leads to death. Because what happens is it, it, it turns into this form of measuring up in order to get in. And only the righteous, only the beautiful, only the fit, only the smart, only this race or this tribe or this, this gender or this political party, there's some measurements by which we are vetted. And if you don't fit those measurements, you don't get in. It is much like the fraternity I joined, and I thought we were the unique and different fraternity because we were diverse, and it really was. And then you got in, and you went through rush, and what did you do? You kept people from coming in because they weren't like you. That's not the gospel. That's not broad at all. But Jesus says this. If you choose the narrow road, the narrow gate, what seems narrow once you go through it, you get on the other side and you realize this is so broad. Anyone can come in. Any race, what Paul is saying. There's no distinction. And Paul knew this because his life before Christ was filled with distinctions. What tribe, what people, how righteous he had been, who he studied under. And he realized that compared to Christ and his righteousness, that was dung. We would say another word. It didn't matter in comparison. And Jesus says, if you put your faith in that, what you would say is a narrow gate, it is actually broad. That is the gate that leads to life. Verse 11, everyone who believes, regardless of background, regardless of 
race, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of gender, nationality. And that's why Paul in verse 13 refers to Joel. If you know this, this verse, it's the idea, it's the picture of God prophesying that one day He is going to pour His Spirit on what? On all people. Listen to what He says. I will pour My Spirit on your sons and, think about the Jewish context here, your daughters, they will all prophesy. Your old men and your young men. Even, he writes, on the male and female servants. Those who did not have status will now have the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2 at Pentecost, if you know that story, Peter is saying, this very thing that you have experienced is that. It is what, it's what Joel prophesied. This is that. That is this. That the Spirit is coming and He's descending on this, all these people and they're going back into all the outskirts of the Roman Empire so that the Gospel will go beyond one nation. It will go to every race, tongue, tribe, and people group. What the new heavens and the new earth will be populated with. But what's it based on? I'm sorry but it's based on this narrow message that Jesus truly is the only... I'm not sorry, I don't apologize for that. I'm just saying for some of you, it's hard to gulp down because we're so saturated with any way is an okay way. And it's not. All roads do not lead to God. They may resemble some of these things, but Jesus is saying He is the only way Think about Matthew 22 for a minute. I would call it the confounding parable of the wedding feast. It starts out really good. You've got this king, a wealthy king, and he wants to have this great big feast for his son. And he, and he invites all the people that should come, right? All the people that should be invited. But what do they do? They would not come. Can you imagine Jesus saying this in his context? People knew that he was talking about them. So what does he do? Yes, they are judged for not coming to Jesus. But what he does is he's saying, go out into the main road. You know the main road. You know where Main Street is in Louisville? Sometimes you don't even want to go down there because everybody's down there. And this is what he says, go to the main roads and get the bad and good people, all of them, and fill up my house. I want it filled with guests. And that's a beautiful ending, and you're ready for the parable to be over, but then there's this little bitty thing at the end where he says, uh, but there was one dude there that did not have on the right clothing. He wore parachute pants to a wedding. Now, I know we would do that today. But in those days, there were wedding garments. And you knew to wear them. And you were being presumptuous or prideful or rebellious if you did not. And you were at that wedding say, I should be here just because I'm me. And Jesus is like, nobody gets in like that. You must wear my righteousness. 
Here's the application, real simple. Don't be that guy. Submit to the righteousness of Christ. Give up. As one theologian said, oh, I knew I was going to forget it. Our damnable good works, apart from faith in Christ, that's what they are. With faith in Christ, they're beautiful and they turn into donuts in the morning and coffee and teachers and all sorts of beautiful things. But don't believe any other message. And love your neighbors who do. And that is getting to the last point. It's a beautiful message. It truly is the beautiful message. Look at verses 14 through 17. It does seem to be too good to be true. If the first two sections are, this is the basic message of the gospel, and it is a broad message. It's open to anyone who will believe. The final section is this. Well, how do we get the word out? How do we spread this message? How will people come to hear this good news? How do, how do people actually become Christians? Paul gives us two things here. He says, first of all, someone has to tell them. And secondly, this is very important, when you tell them, some will find it compelling and others won't. First of all, someone has to tell them. Look at verses 14 and 15. Paul gives four questions there. How do they call on Jesus if they don't believe? How do they believe if they don't hear? How do they hear if they're not told? How are they told if no one goes? It seems simple, but basically this is what he's saying. Someone has to be sent. And the sent person must speak. And they hear, and some believe. So someone is sent. They speak, they hear, they believe. Now let's have fun for a second and flip it backwards. Why do people believe? Well, they believe because they hear the message. They hear because someone speaks. Someone speaks because they are sent. Like, great, Fritz, you really helped us understand those four verses. It's really that simple. But it's hard because if everyone believed it, we'd all just do it all the time, wouldn't we? If people didn't give us grief about it. But look at the second part. Some find it beautiful and others don't. As it is written, some people are going to respond like this. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is important. If you're a Christian, someone shared the good news to you. Someone preached it. Someone evangelized you. It may have been your parents. It may have been your church. It may have been a campus minister. It may have been a friend. It may have been a roommate. But you think about that person in wonderful terms, don't you? You, if you're a Christian, want to go kiss their feet. He's pulling from Isaiah where, where the people have been in captivity for seven years. Can you imagine that? You think we're in a secular culture, right? They were in a secularized culture and they had no rights and no say. And someone comes in and says, you're going home. Do you think you'd be unemotional about that? Of course not. You would want to kiss their feet. Notice it's not kiss their faces. I find that very interesting. We'll talk about that in the saddle this week. You can hold on to that one. But some people actually find it beautiful and compelling some people don't and this is the hard part look at verse 16 
But not all have obeyed the gospel. They've heard the gospel. They've not submitted to Christ's righteousness. For Isaiah even said it. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Do you see what he's saying there? There's sort of this idea that, um, is, well, some people aren't going to believe. And he, the Bible even said that. If matter of fact, in Romans 9, Paul said that, that God is going to harden some. Therefore, I'm not going to tell anybody. Do you see the logic? Paul is saying that you are entrusted with the gospel simple message. And we need to hear that some will believe and some will not. Do you know why I try to go by my favorite coffee shop on most Sundays? I not only want a good cup of coffee, but I'm getting to know the baristas, even when they were striking. And I walk in, I've told you this before, I'm dressed in my blue shirt that everybody was supposed to. Y'all get the memo about blue shirts this morning? And I go in there and everybody is dressed like a hipster. And they all got thrift store clothes. And they all look cool. And I'm telling you, I stand out like a sore throat. And I'm white. <clears throat> and I'm a male. And I'm a Protestant. Everything's against me. And I know where they are on a Sunday. They're not in a church. So I go in there and I try my best by grace not to add to my, what looks like foolishness. And I ask about their lives. I try to get to know their names and I pray for them. No matter what your objection is, <clears throat> it's not a good objection. You can say, yes, it's God's job. But Paul's asking you, who's supposed to tell them? Well, you're like, oh, well, wait a minute, Fritz. Look at verse 15. I I'm not even good at evangelism. I'm not a grocery store prophet. Uh, and in fact, he's not telling me I'm sent. This is the apostle kind of language. I know the Greek here. Yeah, it is. It's either the early apostles, which would make no sense in this context, more so it's ministers and evangelists. It is, absolutely, those commissioned by God to preach. Absolutely, that's correct. Now we can close and you're done and you don't have to tell anybody about the gospel. But we know that Scripture says that the job of a pastor, a preacher, a teacher is also to equip the saints for works of service we know that Jesus gave the apostles this great commission, but he didn't give it to them so they could be like, isn't this a great commission? Let's not tell the church about it. He gave the great commission to them so that they would equip the church to go. Now, let me take the fear and the squirmishness out of it. God is sovereign. We've seen that all through Romans 9. He is over the whole deal. And one of the best things you can do is simply have relationships with unbelievers. Have relationships with people who are different from you. Have relationships with people that aren't Christians. I know that scares you about your children. Use wisdom there. But I'm telling you as mature Christians, they're not going to hear if they don't know Christians. 
Can I please just say this again? If your podcast and your news station is building fear into your system about the world, chop it off. Cut it out. Jesus came to love His enemies. That's why we're all here. Because it's the best news possible. Listen to how Paul said it in chapter 10, verse 1. Remember how this all started. My heart's desire and prayer is that they may be saved. Substitutionary love. I'd rather be cut off and accursed if my fellow prideful, religious, moral, stubborn, unbelieving friends and brothers would become Christians. He found Christ beautiful because Christ was Lord of His righteousness. Last question, and we're done. We're going to the table. How do you find Christ beautiful? It's very simple. Listen to what he said in verse 17, how it closes. How does your faith come and keep coming? You show up every week to what? To hear the word of Christ. You gather in small groups to hear the word of Christ. You meet with one another and you open the word of Christ. You encourage one another with the word of Christ. And as you open the word of Christ, Christ's beauty is open to you over and over and more and more. And you realize his great love for you and his substitutionary love and everything leading up to chapter 10 is for you. That the word of Christ, yes, is about Christ, but it's about his love for you. That this meal is about Christ, but it's a meal for you. Let me close with this silly illustration as I am apt to do. I got a picture this morning while I was studying for this and I don't typically look at my text when I'm studying for stuff but it was from my daughter with our granddaughter and I knew it was going to be a picture of our granddaughter Charlie and it was. And it was our son-in-law sitting on the couch next to our granddaughter Charlie under a blanket reading a book. And it was the book that Fanny, her grandmother, my wife, gave Charlie for Christmas. And you know what the book is entitled? We Love You. And every picture, Charlie is in it. And it's her favorite book. She loves to read. You know, it's not just Charlie looking at pictures of Charlie but it's pictures of Charlie being loved. And underneath it will have, of course, the first one is Fanny loves Charlie. And it's got Fanny holding Charlie. And then it's Pop loves Charlie. And then it's Auntie Chloe loves Charlie. And it's Funkel, that's her, her fun uncle, loves Charlie. And Funkel is holding Charlie. And it's her parents love Charlie. And of course, at the very end, it's Fanny really loves Charlie. <laughs> Charlie loves that book. Is it about Charlie? Yeah. It's about a greater love. Don't get that message mixed up. That's what this meal's about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, both heard 
and Lord willing proclaimed in this church, even through weak people. Um, we thank you for this table that proclaims the gospel, that allows us to taste Jesus. And Lord, you said uh, somewhere, I think it's in John, that blessed are those who see and believe, but even more blessed are those who don't see Christ in the person and believe. But thank you that you gave your church the sacraments both baptism and the supper, so that we can taste and see. That we can be nourished, not just in our body, but more importantly, our hearts and our souls, our minds. And God, that we can be renewed in your love for us, because we fall back into those spirits of slavery. As we come to this table, put us back in the Father's lap and remind us and assure us of your love for us, that we are indeed your children not based on what we do, not based on what we didn't do, but based on Christ's righteousness. And Lord, remind us that therefore we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ and we are seated in the heavenly places. I could go on and on and on, but we need to come to this table. In Christ's name, amen.